Welcome to another episode of the Perspectives podcast. We're back with Andrew Ballantyne, JLL's Head of Research for Australia and New Zealand, to reveal the most compelling trends from JLL's latest round of research, including the haves and the have-nots of the office sector, that's a gap getting bigger, what investors are learning about the price of their assets, and why cost of living pressures may not be as widespread as headlines suggest. I'm Rebecca Kent, your host. Enjoy. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? Hi, Rebecca. So we're halfway through the year. As usual, JLL's real estate analysts have been crunching the numbers. And so we've got the results for the second quarter of 2023. But also the midpoint of the year is always an interesting milestone and a good reason uh, to reflect on whether the performance of real estate sectors has panned out the way we expected six months ago. So what aspects of the market have got people talking at this point? Look, I think at the moment, Rebecca, office is the sector which is capturing a lot of the headlines. You know, clearly we've been on a journey through the COVID period in terms of how office space is used. You know, at the same time, we've got unemployment rates, you know, close to record lows or in the case of New South Wales at an all-time low at the moment. So we've got a whole range of factors that are currently influencing the sector. If you look at our numbers over the financial year for CBD office markets, we recorded 141,000 square metres of positive net absorption. Even within that positive net absorption, we have counted a number of the subleases that came to the market uh, through the second quarter in Sydney. In terms of how I'm summarising these numbers, it feels like it's very much the haves and the have-nots of the office sector. And the haves are those prime-grade assets, those assets which don't necessarily have to be brand new. They can be older prime grade assets, which have continued to see CapEx allocated to them, have continued to invest in experience and tenant amenity. But if you take that broader prime market, it recorded 182,000 square meters of net absorption. If you look at secondary assets, it was minus 41,000. So a very significant divergence between those two grades and certainly showing as I've just said, the haves of prime versus the have-nots of secondary. That's so interesting because we've been talking about that as an emerging trend even pre-COVID pandemic. And so, yeah, it's interesting to be able to qualify that now with some pretty compelling data. It's exceptionally pronounced in both Sydney and Melbourne. You know, Sydney and Melbourne have both had positive absorption for prime and very negative results for secondary Secondary grade assets have been a little more resilient in the other geographies where it hasn't been the same negative result, but clearly not as strong as what we've seen for prime grade assets. But if you look at some of those other geographies and take Perth as an illustration, over the last 12 months, Perth recorded 66,500 square meters of absorption. That's more than three times higher the 20 year average for Perth. So even though we talk about, you know, some of the challenges that we're seeing around how we're using space, uh, you know, the fact that economies are slowing more broadly, that is a phenomenal result for the Perth CBD market. And when you look at Perth, you generally, the first thing you think of is resources. And clearly they've been a positive contributor, but we're also seeing activity from the public sector and also professional services firms. The other market that's really jumped out from a numbers perspective is the Brisbane CBD. Over the last financial year that we've just completed, it was 60,000 square meters of net absorption, which is just over double Brisbane's long-term average. And while the Queensland government has certainly been active with a number of leasing requirements, we're seeing a lot of infrastructure-related 
requirements coming to market that's having a very positive impact on overall inquiry levels. And if you actually look at Brisbane, we're now starting to see some pretty firm rental growth come through. The other market which flies under the radar a little bit that's been interesting to watch has been uh, the Adelaide CBD. It had 13,000 square meters of absorption over the last financial year. And one of the things that is interesting about Adelaide is it's exposed to growth sectors of the economy. It's exposed to education. It's exposed to technology. It's exposed to health and also the defense sector as well. So when you generally think over the next five to 10 years, what sectors will really drive Australia, you actually see those sectors are very highly represented in South Australia and in the Adelaide CBD specifically. It's interesting to note those really solid industry drivers there. How do you explain the difference between prime and secondary uptake of offices in Sydney and Melbourne compared to Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide though? I think there's a couple of reasons you can look at. Outside of Sydney and Melbourne, the proportion of smaller organisations is larger and quite a lot of those organisations don't yet have their own ESG statements or they don't have statements around what they're ultimately looking to achieve from a net zero perspective. So they're less driven by some of those factors. What we will caution though is that those large occupiers that do have targets around scope one, scope two and scope three To me, they're very much focused on scope one and two. They will start to think about scope three, given that 2040 is a big year for those organizations in terms of being net zero on scope three. And scope three includes your suppliers. And a lot of those smaller organizations are suppliers to those larger groups. So they will start to see the influence on them through the procurement strategies of those larger organizations and they will be getting asked the question more and more and that will ultimately drive and shape their behavior. Because when you think about ESG and you think about the influences, there are a whole range of stakeholders that are actually influencing this discussion. You know, there's the general population, you know, you and I and what our views are. There's also, as we've touched on around suppliers and also customers, there's views on financiers before we even start to think about, you know, public bodies and other regulatory agencies. Uh, Okay, so it's only a matter of time for those smaller organisations and owners of those secondary grade assets, then it'd better get a wriggle on, I suppose, to deliver on tenant sustainability demands, right? I'm increasingly believing that the grade of real estate is losing a little bit of its relevance. And I think it's really around the actual credentials of the asset. And I know you might be looking at me going, surely that's always been what it is. But there are certainly, you know, secondary grade assets which can either be repositioned or actually do have reasonable sustainability credentials but are classified as secondary for other reasons. And there are certainly lower quality A-grade buildings which don't have the same level of sustainability credentials. So I don't think we're going to quite necessarily see a blurring of the line between grade, but I think the assessment of an overall building is going to be a lot more complex than just looking at what its grade is and what that grade ultimately or normally reflects. Right. So it sounds like we'll be looking at green star ratings and neighbours ratings and well ratings even more so than we already are. So we've covered leasing. I just want to shift over now to investment, Uh, so capital markets. It's a challenging but pretty interesting space at the moment. We're clearly in the office sector and other sectors on a price discovery journey. And if you look at our transaction volumes through the first half of this year, they're sitting at around 7 billion. 
to put that in context, last year across the calendar year, and this is not just office, this is retail and logistics as well, we traded 30 billion and the year before we traded 48 billion. So just looking at those numbers alone clearly shows that we are in a period of very, very low liquidity for commercial real estate. And ultimately what we're doing as we go through this price discovery journey is cost of capital has moved higher. I think we we know that. We've certainly seen you know interest rates and borrowing costs move up. And part of the challenge that we're seeing a lot of investors facing in terms of when they price assets is we don't just look at the spot bond yield today, which is currently trading at around 4%. Real estate's a longer-term investment, so we tend to look at a terminal risk-free rate. And if you look at what most economists are saying, their terminal risk-free rate still sits somewhere between 29 and 3.1%. Then you add on a risk premium for real estate of anywhere between 300 to 350 basis points. And that tells you what your unlevered return expectation should be for the best quality assets. Now, while we're fairly comfortable around risk premium, the risk-free rate or the 10-year government bond yield, when it's currently sitting at four, you have to be very, um, very brave, for want of a better phrase, to say, I think it's coming back to 295 to 3.1%. And there's a phrase I learned very early in my career, which is no one pays a premium for uncertainty. And what we're clearly seeing at the moment is a level of uncertainty around what risk-free rate we should be using. Because if you do believe that the 4% is the terminal figure and you add on your real estate risk premium, then clearly that has a significant impact on what return expectations would be. So at the moment, we are seeing some groups that do believe they're able to access assets that they may not normally be able to access. And you have certainly seen the trades that have gone through have gone through at a discount to their previous valuation. Uh, but we're still dealing with a very low number of trades at the moment. And we've still not seen the trades of what we would consider the best quality buildings in our market. And that's really across the sectors. So are we talking about investors playing in a higher price bracket than they normally would? It's not necessarily around a shift in price, but the quality of asset that they believe they can achieve and also there being less competition uh, for that asset uh, than, than what they would normally see. And just explain price discovery. How long will this discovery journey take? I mean, how long does it typically take? If you look back at, and this is very, very different to the financial crisis, but it was a two-year period then, if you look back to the early 90s, it was it was even longer. So we're already more than 12 months into this overall journey. As I said, we're now starting to see some assets trade, and they've been very uh, publicly announced. So they will, and a number of those are in due diligence, and they will start to become the evidence through the back half of the year. So my expectations is we will start to see an improvement in liquidity over the second half of the year, but we're coming off very, very low levels. And then we should start to see a recovery in transaction volumes in 24. So this slowdown in deals, apart from being frustrating for agents, is even more so for property owners who would like to shift their assets but aren't getting the price they'd quite like? There's fairly limited distress in the market, so there's not too many groups that have to shift property. And if you ultimately have a view on the value of your asset and a potential purchaser has a different view, you ultimately get a disconnect between vendor and purchaser price expectations. And that disconnect is part of the price discovery journey that we're currently on at the moment. 
All right. But it does sound like there'll be more clarity at least as we move through the year. Should we move on over to retail? Tell us what you're seeing in our shopping centres. Well, retail has been an interesting one to watch for a period of time. And what we've started to see in our data is that retail vacancy rates for certain categories are trending down. If you look at the CBD vacancy that obviously peaked during the COVID period, it's not exactly a heroic reduction in vacancy, but at the end of last year, it was 13.5. Today, it's down to 13. So we're taking small steps in the right direction. If you look at neighborhood shopping centers, those that are anchored by supermarkets and specialty retailers, the national vacancy rate there fell from 6.7 to 5.4%. So it's been interesting watching us starting to see that reduction in, in retail vacancy across different categories. And retail clearly has been a sector that was impacted by online retail over the last few years. The way I tend to look at online retail is to me, it's a form of floor space. So if you were consuming goods 100% within a physical store and suddenly you're now buying up to 20% of those online, that's a substitute effect. So ultimately, that means that the retail sector in terms of the physical floor space was oversupplied. Now, the market has reacted to that over a number of years where we've seen less development activity, fewer centers have been built. And it feels like we've now started to reach a point where the market has found its equilibrium. And ultimately, we've absorbed that excess capacity, which is essentially the online component. And now we've absorbed that capacity. It's back to more normalized market fundamentals. And one of the big growth in terms of you know, consumption and retail spending is related to population growth. And we've seen population growth rebound significantly. And if you look at the forecast for Australia, if we're not the strongest, we're certainly in the top two or three in terms of population growth for a mature economy over the next decade. So that's clearly the positive or the tailwind that we see for spending. Now, we're not naive to say that there isn't cost of living pressures. You know, clearly, I don't think there would be one person in the mature world that would say they haven't faced some form of cost of living pressures at the moment. Um but we're obviously at the same time seeing yeah, wages growth, uh, not quite at the levels of inflation, but inflation is now coming back down. Uh, and also, I think when we look at some of those cost of living pressures, there's a lot of fixation on what's happening with mortgage rates. And clearly, that's a very relevant part of the discussion. But it's often forgotten when you look across Australia, 30% of homes are actually owned outright. So that's owned without a mortgage. So that's a cohort of the market that is clearly not feeling any mortgage pressure at the moment. We do have 33% that are actually owned with a mortgage. And typically those people that feel mortgage pressure or stress quickly are those that are on floating rates and have typically purchased in the last few years. So yes, there would be an impact there. And yes, that clearly will have an impact on discretionary spending. Then you've got the other part of the market, which is essentially those that rent. And that's quite interesting as well, because clearly there would be a, a proportion of those and quite a large proportion that own with a mortgage. But at the same time, you've got rentals going up, which are actually partly offsetting that increase in costs. The flip side is the renter that's then starting to feel some rental stress that's coming through there at the moment. But I think what I'm trying to articulate, Rebecca, is it's a much more complex story than saying rising interest rates hit Australian household sector, you know, hard. 
it certainly does hit parts of the market hard, but there are parts of the market which are obviously less exposed. And for those 30% of homeowners that own outright, they're probably feeling quite happy that term deposits are going up at the same time. So I guess it's too simplistic to say that everyone's going to be experiencing financial distress due to increasing mortgage rates and that retail is going to hit the skids. Oh, look, there'll always be a level of consumer spending and clearly there will be pockets of distress where you have areas where you have a very high proportion of people have a mortgage and have bought recently. Ultimately, retail spending is cyclical. It always has been cyclical. So yes, there will be some pressures on discretionary spending moving forward. But you come back to the labour market that we said right at the start of this discussion, you know, we're pretty much close to full employment. You know, that is a phenomenal statistic, you know, for the Australian economy. Sure is. So just moving on, we're now over the halfway point of 2023. What's different to what we expected at the start of the year? I don't think, to be honest, too much has surprised me. I think the one shift that we're starting to make in our forecasts at the moment, well, sorry, one shift that we've already made in our forecasts is we're starting to reduce supply expectations, in particular in the office sector. If you look at, say, Sydney CBD as an illustration, you know, 12 to 18 months ago, we had a significant development pipeline for 25, 26. If you look at what we're seeing now, it's virtually nothing over those two years. And ultimately, the reason we've made the shift there is that we've seen, as we've touched on around what's been happening in the capital markets and the fact that yields have moved out for the better quality assets, that has a significant impact on economic rents for new development. And we're seeing economic rents jump quite significantly that they would be above where market rents would be at the moment. So ultimately, in that type of environment, you typically see less new development activity. So we've made some a pretty significant uh, shift in our Sydney CBD supply forecast for 25 and 26. So that's offices. And in retail, as you mentioned earlier, the small decrease in vacancy in CBDs is a step in the right direction. The big challenge that CBD retailers are facing is that their trading patterns have become even more uneven than what they were pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, they certainly had days of the, the week that were very big. Now they can be exceptionally quiet on a Monday, as an illustration. They can be exceptionally quiet on other days as well. And often the days where you're seeing it being busy are, you know, Thursday, Saturday, Friday can be a little mixed, but often they can be uh, facing, you know, higher labor costs on those days uh, because of the, 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 the hours that those people are working and the times of the week that they're working as well. So it's a very challenging environment for a retailer being based in the CBD, given that level of fragmentation and given, obviously, the, the demand for their, their product or service is um, a lot more fragmented than what it was pre-COVID. So interesting. I guess much like offices, we're all still trying to work out patterns in the way people like to work. So it's a constant calibration, I guess. So Andrew, mid-year is also a great time to consider what the next six months is going to hold. What should we be looking out for? I think what's going to be interesting over a longer period of time is we have seen announcements from the Commonwealth of Australia and some of the banks around what flexible working could could look like for them moving forward. So ultimately, it will say to me that their space requirements are going to be smaller than what they were pre-COVID, or there's going to be a period of time where their headcount growth comes through to offset that flexibility. 
But what we have seen in our numbers is very strong growth in small businesses. Typically, small business growth does slow as the economy grow, uh, slows. But what I do expect to see is that we will see more small business formation over the longer period of time. And ultimately, smaller organizations will become a larger part of the, the overall occupied market. So it'll be interesting to see the types of strategies that we develop to you know, attract and retain those types of businesses uh, within our office accommodation. And that diversity can only be a good thing for our economy. I mean, small businesses are the lifeblood of any economy. So when you're seeing small business growth, that is, that is a positive more broadly, regardless of what sector we're actually talking about. Excellent. All right, Andrew Ballantyne, until next time, thank you very much. Thank you. 